Welcome back to Last Life Ever. My name is Jeffrey Holst, and that... I'm Jillian Sidoti. <laughs> Starting to wonder if you're awake there, you're Jillian. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never sure if you're going to introduce me or what have you. I also was, like, really focused on you welcoming people back. Um, this is the beginning of the show, so I'm not sure where we're welcoming them. From last good. episode. I'm welcome oh, right. from last okay, so they, episode. They watched all of our episodes up until this point. Nobody right. would I'm ever sure, I'm sure that at least one person is in the middle of a multi-day binge of the Last Life Ever podcast <laughs> right now. I do that whenever I'm sad. <laughs> People say, I like, I say, what did you do this weekend? And they said, I Last Life ever and vent and, and chilled. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. I, I feel like I feel like maybe we ought to just get started with the show. We have an amazing guest today, Jillian. Who do we have on today? We have Nick Killingsworth, and he is the author of Through the Fire, the story of the four-time cancer survivor, type 1 diabetic, recovering alcoholic who became an obstacle course racer and defied it all. He's also done six marathons. Jeff, how many marathons have you done recently? Seven. <laughs> And he's an obstacle course racer, and I and he believes his purpose is to overcome every obstacle. He just Jeff, so much of him, uh, except for the the obstacle course and his marathon marathon. I did an obstacle course once, actually. I did one of the Spartan races, like the five k ones. Yeah, I actually did. I'll send you a video of it sometime. It was terrible. I hated. Is that the one? Is that the one where they shock you? No, um, no. You had to climb over things and under razor wire and like jump yeah, no. into pools of yeah. mud and stuff like that. Well, let's bring Nick on because I have some comments on the obstacle course thing. But uh, okay, but go. before we do that, let's go ahead and play the intro. <laughs> How do you, how's that sound? Sounds good too. Help me, my brother. Can you lend me a hand? As I walk through this land of confusion. If we give to each other, then there's nothing to take. Let's live like for the moment before it slips away. We Hey, Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, guys, how you doing? Really, really well. Awesome. awesome. So, Nick, tell us, okay, you survived cancer a lot. Tell us what happened. All right. So, uh, starting back in 2005, I was a... I was a salesperson living out in Western Massachusetts, working for a telecommunications company. I was in my early 20s. Uh, living by myself and didn't really know what to do when you got sick, um, as dumb as that may sound. Uh, so I had just moved to a different apartment. I was living in a small place called Milford in Milford, Massachusetts. It was January, it was winter time, and the apartment I was living in was probably four or 500 years old and hadn't been renovated since. So the reason I tell you that is I, I started waking up in the mornings with like a, 
kind of a dark substance on the back of my tongue. Um, like, like really like awful dry mouth every day. And I assumed it was because of the, you know, fact that it was four degrees outside. It was an old heating system, an old building. It was just something I was sort of used to. And, uh, but I was really lethargic, really run down. And I was like 23 or 24 years old, not the sort of energy you're supposed to have at that age. Uh, so I started seeing a doctor. Um, I started seeing several doctors because after maybe about a few weeks of that substance on my tongue, I finally decided that, that it was blood and I didn't know why. Um, so, you know, I saw the, uh, the, the gastroenterologist guy, we, we looked down, did the, um, I'm sorry, what's the one with the camera down the throat? Some Whatever, kind of we scope did that. anyway. Yes, we <laughs> so, did. <laughs> we, we did. We looked there. Uh, we saw a proctologist. We did another uncomfortable situation with a camera. Um, You're like, what, we got to go the other way to see your throat? I don't know. That doesn't make sense. Like, we were looking... <laughs> every which way to try to determine what where the blood was coming from and then finally i saw an endocrinologist who i had never seen in my life i didn't even know what it was and this guy uh he's just sort of feeling around my throat and the way he paused so you got to understand i was a private investigator for 20 years uh i am just now in my life trying trying to pretend to learn how to trust people. And I'm a little more intuitive than the average Jedi. So I notice little things and I read into them a lot. And when this guy paused and stopped, I knew right then and there that I had cancer. I don't know why. He's not a cancer doctor. You know, I had no idea. We were looking for cancer. I knew almost nothing about it except what everybody else knows, cancer, chemo, death. That's sort of like the running theme you know, until you get experience with it. And, you know, he felt something that didn't belong. And then we ordered a biopsy, which I don't care what they tell you, a biopsy of the neck is one of the most horrible experiences I think you can go through. It's just like you're getting stabbed over and over again. It's like that scene at a casino. And uh, so it later came back and it confirmed that it was cancer. It was papillary, papillary carcinoma, which is thyroid cancer. Um, I guess as far as cancers go, this is sort of one of the ones that you want. It's not incredibly invasive. Um, the course of action for it doesn't involve chemo. The prognosis is very good. But they did have to cut my throat open and, and take the thyroid out. And then after that, you do uh, a course of radioactive iodine, which is literally you take, a, you, you show up to the, the nuclear medicine doctor. They put two pills in a cup. You take the pills and go home. You just can't go outside or be around other people for the next couple of days because you're actually radioactive as it's supposed to obliterate everything else. So, so beyond that, you're, you don't have a thyroid anymore. Um, and so therefore there's nothing to regulate your metabolism, your endocrine system and well, pretty much everything. And so then you actually have to start just taking pills every day. Um, forever. The, the problem with those is that getting the dosage right, it's not just take two of these and, and call me in the morning situation. They, you know, as you get older, as you fluctuate weight, just things in your life change, like those numbers are always going to change and they, they do affect how the rest of your body functions. But beyond that, that was sort of it for cancer. It, you know, it was something that lingered in my mind. It definitely, yeah, I'll admit now that I think it haunted me. Uh, just knowing that it was, it had happened, it was there, it was a scary experience. 
Um, but then I began to move on and it was a couple of years later. It was 2007. I had moved to Florida. Um, I had just found out I had just become diabetic. I was 27 years old late in late 2006. I just started like losing weight. Um, like crazy. I lost weight over Thanksgiving. I lost like 60 pounds in like two months. I was the, I looked like a kid wearing his dad's suit. My cheeks were all sucked in. I was eating ice cream every day. It was amazing, but I just kept losing weight. And so my ex-wife, her, her dad was diabetic and she was very well aware of what was going on, even though I wasn't. Um, I finally went to the doctor and they put me in the ER for three days. Um, I was actually in ICU, uh, like, cause my blood sugar levels were up over 800. So they kept me under there. This, uh, yeah, yeah, it was brutal. Except I felt fine. Like I'm walking around bitching about the food and like there's a stab victim next to me. It was just sort of a weird experience. But wow. uh, I tell you that because I got a, I got a new endocrinologist because of that. Um, and then it was probably seven or eight months later, I'm seeing him for another routine type visit. And he orders, he's like realized nobody had been following up on my cancer. And see, so he, he ordered an ultrasound on my throat. <clears throat> and it was just the same feeling. You know, when you do something so many times that you begin to kind of feel the routine, you know, click, click, picture, you know, click, click, picture. You notice when something's off. You notice when it's like click, click, picture, pause, picture, pause, picture. You know, what, what are they looking at? What are they doing different? And again, I could have just been guessing, but something inside of me told me right then again there that, cancer was back. Um, so Doc got the results. There was something in the ultrasound that didn't belong, which didn't really make any sense because supposedly my entire thyroid had been removed, but it turns out only half of my thyroid had been removed and nobody knew that. So uh, he ordered yet another biopsy. It was awful and it confirmed cancer. So we went ahead and took the rest of it out. Um, and then at that point, I I had a bit of a falling out with the guy who was supposed to do the surgery, um, like the day before surgery. You know, something I realized along the way, 2005 was different. The first time was scary. Nobody told me what to expect. I had no idea. You know, back then I thought an 11 a.m. doctor's appointment mean you were going to go see the doctor at 11 o'clock, not wait for six and a half hours, you know, to see someone else. So, but 2007 was different. I sort of knew what to expect. You know what I did when I got diagnosed with cancer that day? I went to the bookstore. <laughs> I, I went to the I went uh back in the day when people would do such a thing um I remember I'd gone out to dinner with my ex-wife and there was a Barnes and Noble right next door and I was like well I'm going to be sitting around a lot so I might as well get some books to read and one of the books that I got was and I mentioned this in my book but Lance Armstrong's it's not about the bike and regardless of any of the you know stuff surrounding him and his accomplishments like his how he dealt with cancer, I think, was incredibly inspiring. And it, it did something for me, too, because uh, a couple of the takeaways in that book, one in particular was that he questions whether or not, you know, did I beat cancer or did the doctors beat cancer? And that's where oh. I kind of got it in my head that we don't beat cancer. People don't beat cancer. People can survive cancer. You know, doctors can beat cancer. Medicine can be cancer god can be cancer a little love and luck can be cancer but all i can do is live and i can live my best life as best as i can as long as i can regardless of the other stuff and so i decided that that meant to me that 
I also had a standard for how I was willing to be treated by the medical community. Oh, that's, start, stop right there because I, I have an unreasonable fear of doctors. It's not like one of those, like, no, I'm so scared. I don't want to go to the doctor. I can't. It's more like, oh, my dogs are going to join us now. I'm waiting for one of mine to realize I'm in here. (laughs) So, um, but uh, it's not. I love that transition, by the way, Jillian. You're like, it's not like I have an unreasonable fear of doctors. It's my dogs are going to join us. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, she just burst right through the door. Anyhow, um, the it's not that it's more like, I just don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to be, I don't want to be told that I'm crazy or that, you know, maybe I just need to exercise more or maybe, you know, whatever, whatever thing I've, I've had so many experiences where I've been ignored by a doctor that it's just, it's just easier not to go, not to bother, just wait to see if it resolves. Right. Uh, So I'm wondering if that's what you mean. Like, doctors being dismissive of you 100% that and the fact that I mean honestly and yeah I don't pull punches when it comes to this doctors stop learning the moment they graduated medical school Um, and by the way the things I'm about to say about doctors are not entirely their fault because they it's I I 100% I don't fear doctors and I don't fear cancer I fear the health insurance company because that's who's gonna kill me those thieving degenerate scumbags who let people who didn't graduate high school out of the Midwest make my life and death medical decisions will be the reason that I die young. It's the reason that so many people have to suffer. And that said, doctors have to live in the rules created by them. So uh, it's almost hard to blame them for the fact that I think many of them gave up. But I mean, I literally seeing an endocrinologist because dealing with diabetes and being an endurance athlete has been a constant struggle. And the amount of times that I do sort of give up, but I went to a different endocrinologist about two years ago and I told the guy, like, you gotta keep in mind, I live in Florida, all right? This is God's waiting room. So I had to yell at this guy and I was like, you need to stop comparing me to the people in your waiting room. Like, there's something wrong. Like, I need someone to work with me on this. And literally, telling this guy that I'm a type one and diabetic endurance athlete. And I, I need just someone to help me how to better understand how to manage my blood sugars with that. And he literally told me he couldn't help me and he doesn't know anyone else who could, this is a doctor. So that's my level of respect for them. And going back to 2007, that was when I decided that, you know what, like, I remember when you're a kid, you thought, you know, Oh, what a noble, like, they were gods they were celebrities to you you know growing up to be a doctor was like this mythical thing and they were magical people and realize it's just part of it it's part of a system that doesn't care about patient we are the we're the customer that's it so and i want to challenge you for a second because i have a different relationship with the medicals you know medical um, profession i have i love my doctors i have three doctors that i see regularly right um, and I feel like they all care d- deeply about me. Um, and I feel like I'd be dead if it wasn't for their intervention, right? So I had leukemia in 2008, um, chronic myeloid leukemia, and I've been treated. Granted, I will argue that there is a possibility that the pharmaceutical companies are creating long-term expensive solutions that make them rich. 
not, not arguing that, right? Like I have to take a very expensive chemotherapy drug daily as a result of that. But the flip side is I'd be dead if I didn't take it, right? And my doctors seem to care about me. And when I ask them questions, they take the time to answer them. So is it possible? Maybe you just need to find the right doctors. So I, I, I think you make an interesting point um, because I do have, I met a doctor, a general practitioner last year. Uh, and I know we're jumping all over the place, but a year ago I actually fractured, uh, I fractured the cartilage of my rib during an obstacle course race. Um, and which I finished. Um, that's another story, but this sounds painful, uh, I, by the way. It was the most painful thing I've ever gone through in my life. Um, so you're gonna edit this so cool. When I race uh, Spartan races, I typically race shirtless and I take a Sharpie and I write fuck cancer across my chest. Um, and I had on this particular day in Ohio last year and it was like mile three and I was doing this obstacle where you gotta climb a rope to get up over this wall and I'm twisting my body and all of a sudden something popped. And I mean, it was like blinding, excruciating pain. And I just start taking the penalty loop. Like my eyes are closed. I'm literally just like gritting it out. I had fuck cancer written on my chest. You just can't start quitting things when you do that. And so uh, it took me about three hours to, com to complete that eight-mile race, which, by the way, the day before, I did my 14-mile race in three hours. So you could see that the time difference. Um, so when I got back, I went to the ER, and they took an X-ray, and nothing was broken. They threw pain pills at me and sent me on my way, whatever. That's fine. Like, you, it's the ER. What are they going to do, right? But I know that something is wrong. It's not a broken rib, but, like, it was there was a, a big, like, just bulge on top of my rib. It was, again, I was in excruciating pain. I called, like, 26 orthopedic doctors in this area. Not one of them would see me for it. Oh, I'm sorry. One did just so I could go down there and have them tell me that, yeah, this isn't my specialty. And I'm like, well, you knew what the injury was. Why did you have me come down here? So because of all the fun medical stuff I have going on, I always have specialists. I haven't had a general practitioner in, like, I don't know, 10 years or so maybe. Um, and so I finally just found a, a general practitioner and I love this guy because he cares. He, it, he openly will tell me that he has no earthly idea what we're, what's going on here, but let's try to find out. And, you know, so I do know what that's like for sure. And, you know, the guy who was my original diabetes doctor for a very long time, like I felt we had a relationship where again, he did care about me. You know, he would ask about my work and talk about his kids. But at the same time, there was a point where that guy switched. And again, I think sometimes they're subject to a system. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're probably just over it. I'm not, I don't know, but like, they're just, there comes a point where, where, where the patient, where I can't live my best life if I'm standing in, in line because uh, like begging to, the insurance company or the doctor for me not to die. And right. I think a lot of that has to, you know, we have to be responsible for managing our own care. So, you know, I, the number of endocrinologists that I've had to try to go through again, to find someone who would actually care. I I've gone through like six or seven so far. And by the way, even if they care, all that means is what they spend 
spend three minutes with me instead of two. You know, the guy that I'm seeing now, he literally pulled one of those those server things. You know, they're walking by your table. Hey, everything okay over there? Great. And they keep walking. Oh, my like, God. That was our meeting. He literally stands up, asks me a question. He's like, and I start to ask him a question. He leaves the room. I'm talking. He leaves the room. I'm in mid-sentence. But I don't care because I realize my relationship with my endocrinologist is this. I need them to approve medications, and that's it. I don't need them for anything else anymore. I'm going to get my information from other diabetics. I'm going to get it from other people who have gone through what I'm going through. You know, I will find specialists. I'm learning more and more about nutrition to take over, you know, take back this part of my life because I know that I simply can't rely on them for the quality of it. Um, you know, when I was initially going through the thing that started this conversation was my experience in 2007 where, again, I, I didn't know what was going on here right surgery then what i was i was supposedly getting married in a month you know honeymoon in a month and i had no idea if i was still going to be alive let alone get to go on those things and i was trying to ask someone for questions just trying to get some sort of an answer and then on top of it they canceled my surgery the day before surgery because supposedly something during the pre-op didn't sit right with my heart but nobody would answer the question so i'm like at this point i lost my mind and I mean it. I called them up and I was like, you're fired. I'm coming to get my paperwork. They're like, eh, we'll mail it to you in six weeks. And I was like, I'm going to be there in 45 minutes. I'm coming to get my paperwork. I went up there. I took it. I fired them. And I felt so good, even though I still didn't have any answers to the questions, because the way I just was being mistreated by the staff, I was like, I don't have to live this way. And as a result of that, I ended up going into Moffitt Cancer Center, which is one of the best cancer centers in the country. My doctor, a guy named um, who unfortunately retired, he was somebody who cared. You know, he was somebody who told me the truth, which is something that's rare when it comes to anything, I guess, in such a litigious world. It was nice yeah, to actually have him tell me something. True, right? and what, it's, sorry, it's, it's rare that anyone tells you the truth, period. Not, not just doctors, right? Like, People are afraid of the truth now. Um, so, hey, I want to um, I want to stop you for a second, though, because um, we're going to run out of time and we talk about this forever. So so you that was your second cancer. You you said four time cancer survivor. What are, what are the next two cancers? Because here's here's my experience. Right. The first time I got cancer, I was like, this is not great. And I was scared and I felt all that fear. Second time I got cancer, my reaction was I don't know a lot of people that have multiple cancers and survive. Like, you know, you hear these stories, like somebody beats cancer, then they have a different cancer and then it's like they die the next week. So I was actually more scared the second time, you know, an unrelated cancer than I was the first. I can't even imagine having to go through that four separate times. You know, the second time I was, I think I was a little more scared. And I think all the feelings that I was holding back from the first time were hitting me because, you know, I was in 2005, I was this young kid. I had nothing to lose. You know, here I am in 2007. I'm in Florida. I have a nice place. I have a girl I'm about to marry. I have a job like things are good. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm about to lose all this or, or am I or what? And it, it, it was emotionally draining trying to pretend everything was okay. You know, but at the same time, I didn't realize these feelings until I wrote my book because I had to be honest with myself when I was writing it. And so, I, I mean, I shelled that for, what, 15 years then? But so we fast forward to 2013. I've had six years of good care, going to Moffitt, regular routines. And despite the fact that I 100% do not have a thyroid now, where we were certain on that one, 2013 was a recurrence of thyroid cancer. 
Um, now, you, you got to understand, my story is always going to be a mixed bag, all right? There's four things going on at once. Um, I was well into the throes of my drinking in 2013. Um, as a matter of fact, when uh, I when I got that tumor, I had actually just decided to stop drinking, um, but not attend any sort of program or just I decided I was going to do it on my own. And so for about four months, I was just white knuckling, not drinking. And then I get this cancer diagnosis. Only this time, the tumor is very small. It's sitting directly on the vocal cords. It's borderline inoperable without further risk. And so, and it's still there, by the way. Like, it's now 10 years. That tumor is just sitting on my neck. And to be told by the doctor that they couldn't do surgery, uh, they talked about a couple different options. All of them were bad. I wasn't scared. That was my excuse to just drink. And that's what I needed at the time because that's who I was at the time. Um, you know, so for me, it was just great. Who's going to give me a hard time now? I have inoperable cancer. <laughs> Let's get after it. And so here's the weird thing. I often tell people that cancer saved my life because I sort of needed that last month or two of drinking to hit the bottom I was going to hit in order to get sober. Um, mm. 11 months after I got sober, my mom died and I had a very fractured relationship with her. And I was pretty much well committed to the fact that if I think it, I probably would have drank until I died had I still been drinking at that time. So in a, the strangest, most roundabout way. I got cancer a third time. It was my excuse to take the, you know, let the genie out of the bottle and it got me to where I needed to get to get sober so that I could handle everything else that's come after that, including the the fourth experience with cancer, which was the different one. Um, well, I want to stop before you get to the fourth, the fourth one. <laughs> I want to ask you, um, what did you do to I, I, I what did you do to stop drinking? Because I find stopping drinking, societally speaking, to be one of the most difficult things to do. I have lived now in two different places in my in my life. Um, I, the place I lived before I live where I am now, which is Puerto Rico, was a, a place that had wineries everywhere. Everybody went to the wineries. That's what you did. You go to the wineries. So like you were almost like it was almost as if you lost a social circle if you stopped drinking. Right. And uh, and same here in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, it, I have to be away from certain friends to give myself that space to not drink because otherwise we'll be drinking every day. I mean, it's like the town I live in looks like it's practically um sponsored by Bacardi and Corona. There's signs everywhere. So um, I, I, I find I, I, I'm, I'm actually really interested in that because I, I admire anybody who can stop drinking. Uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. So um, I am going to be very clear that I'm only speaking for myself on this one um, mm -hmm. in my experience um, because how people get to where they are is different. And, you know, I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew, I always knew I was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. 
I had a superpower of drinking. I knew that one day that superpower would become my kryptonite and I would have to stop. I just knew it. Um, so the first time when I tried to just stop on my own for a few months, well, I just tempted fate. I did everything wrong. I mean, I literally went to happy hour every night. I mean, I, I did what I could to just sort of stare it down and it was just stupid. Um, so when I was ready is, you know, July 14th, 2014, I walked into the doors of AA and I never walked back. Um, so again, speaking for me, you know, getting into the program was the only way to do it. If someone has a problem, this problem, it's, you can't fix it on your own. It's not, you might've even created it on your own. You can't fix a problem with the same line of thinking that got you there. And a lot of people will have to change their sights, their scenes, you know, where they go, what they do. Uh, some people can't walk down the, you know, the beer aisle in the grocery store, et cetera. Some of that comes back with more time, you know, as you get comfortable sort of reacclimating. I can go anywhere, do anything. You know, I go to Vegas all the, well, I haven't been in a while, but, you know, I've been several times after uh, I got sober. I have no problem in drinking situations and being around it because I don't have that obsession to drink. That said, I used to think that everybody drank in Tampa and I was going to be the only one who didn't. Like everywhere I went, I thought what a party town it was. And when you decide that you want to go do something besides drink, you start seeing all the things that are there besides drinking. Um, but, you know, yeah, something some things are a social scene. I mean, I used to every year at our work conference, I was one of the last guys who closed down the bar. And I had it in my head for years that it was just a big drinking bash and everybody stayed up at the bar till three in the morning and stuff. And then, you know, my first year at one of the conferences sober, I stopped down at the bar at like 11 o'clock at night. There's two people left and it's dark and dingy. And I realized that was me. You know, it's always loud in a bar. You never realize that there's nobody else there. <laughs> they always want to make it seem like it's like it's hopping. So, um, but there are people that what we did find out was that we weren't friends. We just drank together. You know, we just we didn't enjoy the same things. We just enjoyed drinking together. And so, unfortunately, yeah, some of those relationships do tend to go away. But it wasn't you didn't have anything in common besides the drinking. So it's like like anything if you want something better in your life you have to be willing to let go of something else yeah i think that's right um all right so now let's move on to that that unrelated cancer so what happened there what was that about uh, <laughs> just like that's enough of well, i don't know i mean listen I, i'm i'm curious about this because that's the one that got me right like if i if i had just been like yes. oh your leukemia is back like you got to do this new treatment. I think I could have handled that. But when I got diagnosed with melanoma, completely unrelated to my leukemia, I went, oh, now I'm that guy that gets multiple cancers. Like I'm going to die for sure any second now. And uh, that was really difficult for me. I mean, I, I made it through and I'm still not dead, so it could be worse. But um, but I'm, I'm always curious to hear how people respond to these things. Well, this one is interesting because this was the one that tested me tested me the most this i mean here i was two years sober all right remember last time i was like it was my excuse to drink this time i'm i'm living a better life i don't want to go back there and i was getting a massage and all of a sudden she goes huh what's that and there was just this this bump and this kind of pocket back there that 
Um, I was like, well, all right. I'm going to Moffitt anyways uh, to go get my quarterly ultrasound in a couple days. So, And when I did, I was like, hey, while you're back there, do you mind uh, checking that out too? And they weren't really used to having someone order off the menu, but um, but they did it. And here's here's the thing. This was actually the least – I always feel like I'm sitting at the kiddies table when I talk about cancer to other people with cancer because, you know, thyroid cancer, again, it's, it's such a high um, – Jesus, the word I'm looking for here. It's a it's a good one to have as far as you know, as far as cancer is concerned. Right? It's a survival risk, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pro prognosis. That's what I was looking for. Such but, yeah. a good prognosis, you know. And but at the same time, here I was getting told that I had a different cancer. I was going to the sarcoma clinic now at Mo at Moffitt. It was not the same thing. I wasn't just surrounded by like old people dealing with their thyroids, and. You know, it was in the back of my head. I'm like, all right, so am I going to lose all my hair? Like, what's going to happen? Am I going to live or die? Because this time my attitude sucked. And, you know, the the reason being is because I got it in my head and I said, this kind of like you just said, Jeff, there's only so many times you can get cancer and not die. And I'm like, and I think because I didn't want to show anyone how I felt about it. I think it made it so much worse because I had to internalize the whole thing. And, you know, the doctor's trying to figure out what it was, what to do about it. It's not like there was no roadmap. And, you know, I didn't want to worry my, my girlfriend. I didn't want to, I was about to take on this new project, this new department at work. I'm like, and all this stuff. And I'm like, I can't deal with this right now. So I just, I started just worrying. I was like, is this it? Is this all been like a waste? Is this going to be the one that gets me? And it turned out to be the simplest, like the simplest of all. I mean, there was surgery. Uh, I shaved my head because Molan Labe, I said, hey, if it was going to come off one way or another, it's coming off by my hands. Um, <laughs> so I actually shaved my head. Uh, I actually shaved my head. There's a, a little scar in the back there. Um, and it was like, uh, it was weird because this is why I say it was like the baby one. It was like a fatty pocket. There was like residual cancer cells, but nothing active. So I have a feeling if we had just left it be, it would have ended up being nothing. Um, so, but like, again, this was the one that had me the most twisted. And I remember getting that all clear when finally, because I never had an all clear, you know, like through all three experiences, they never said, you don't have cancer anymore. That's another thing that, uh, and I know you understand this. Once you have cancer, you always have cancer. You're never not concerned about getting cancer. It's like once cancer is part of your life, it's always part of your life. You can ignore it. I mean, I forget about the tumor in my neck all the time because I'm just out doing, out living. I'm not trying to worry, but it's not like it doesn't occur to me that it, you know, it still exists. Um, but the irony is that I didn't realize it, but this, it highlighted something for me because about a month after survived that, that got through that whole cancer episode is when my boss uh, walked into my office on a Friday afternoon and suggested that we do a Spartan race together. And it was something I had never heard of, never thought about. And it was something I wasn't interested at, but I hadn't realized so just how uncomfortable it would why would your boss think you'd be, if you've never done it before, you're not like really athletic, you have all this cancer, you're recently, you know, sobered up. Um, 
why would why would your boss think this would be like something you'd want to do or this is a good idea or why would they even suggest it to you uh we were friends and he it was a just a goal of his and he was just trying to recruit some suckers to do that's how i ended up doing my <laughs> like my my boss at the time i think just wanted to torture me and kept asking me until i finally consented and did one. Oh. What is yeah. that true? That's yeah, hilarious. True. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. It was, it was, um, it was a very challenging uh, situation for sure. But anyway, I, it was. Uh, I have a lot of respect for you doing those, Nick, because they're they're difficult. And I just did the short one, right? Like the little five k one. That I've like, I'm assuming you're doing the longer ones than that. I'm doing. I'm doing them all. Um, my biggest goal of the year, which has now been my goal for three years, is to run the ultra uh, in Killington, Vermont. It's like a 33 up, 33 mile, 18,000 feet of elevation, probably 70 obstacles, give or take, on a mountain in Vermont. Um, but I mean, I run all the distances. I was in Ohio a week ago, um, and they had all three distances on that mountain. Um, but that's what what I hadn't realized and what my fourth time with cancer showed me was that there was something missing in my life. Like there was a, there was a hole there and, you know, I was uncomfortable and I hadn't realized it. And that's when I was like, all right, I got nine weeks to do this Spartan race. I, I wanted something to commit to. I wanted to be active again. I wanted to start living again. And it, it just gave me, it gave me a goal. I just didn't know that it was going to literally change my life. Yeah. Wow. So that that's um that's amazing. Actually, I want to um go ahead, Julian. Oh no, please, by all means. I mean, like we never go this long on interviews, so that's how you draw like this. I am I am a yapper. Well, I mean, you could go down six or seven different rabbit holes with me. So I know, like I feel like we didn't even get the nuts and potatoes. Yeah. So I wanted, so I want to talk for just a moment about your book because I, I, we didn't really talk about that too much. So your book is about this story, right? I mean, it's a, um, you know, it's called through fire. And um, so, so you said something really interesting earlier in the interview, you said that you didn't really realize the emotional impact of what you were dealing with until you wrote about it. And I, I feel that too, right? When I wrote my book, which is, it's about my journey. So there's a lot of parallel there. Um, I, it brought up a lot of emotions and I felt like writing was like therapy. Like if no one else read my book, except for me, it would have been worth writing my book because I felt like it, it literally changed my perspective on my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I'm a much better person for having done it. And I think it's the kind of thing that, um, that people, um, that people should do and go through. So in your case, um, is that how it felt for you that like you were like teaching yourself about yourself? I didn't know that's what it was going to do. Uh, like you, I actually did just started writing it for me. Um, and you know, I just started writing and I used to have this spot, this house on the water in Tampa Bay, and I would just take a legal pad and I would go sit on the dock and I would think about a scene, a relevant part for my life. And I would just write. And so that part didn't, hit me emotionally yet because it was still it seemed very abstract right it was when i was taking the 125,000 word jumbled manifesto and turning it into an 87,000 word book and reading it over and over and revising it over and over and then 
you start to see the pattern and you start to realize that you've been telling yourself a bullshit story for 20 years. Cause I don't, you know, uh, the format of the book, cause it's, it's not a life story. It's my story. And the thing is the obstacle course racing is the manifestation of the life changes that I've made. And the book was about the lessons that I've learned from doing it. But if I don't talk about who I was, and if I don't talk about my fears and my insecurities, and if I don't talk about the shitty things that I did as, you know, when I was drinking, then it's just a book about a mediocre middle-aged athlete. And so I had to get extremely naked. You know, there's nobody's going to care about who I am now if they don't know who I was then. Um, and, you know, so I never, there's a chapter I wrote on my mom, and there are things in that chapter I, I've never said out loud to another human being. Um, yeah. I never told anybody how I felt about my sister dying, you know, like I, I never told anybody I was scared about cancer and things I didn't know I was scared until I went through it. And I'm like, dude, you fucking cried on the way to work. <laughs> I'm like, what yeah. do you think that was oh, about? <laughs> yeah, that is so true. And I mean, for me too, like, you know, I wrote the first, I opened my book with this story about um, when I was 17 and I walked into a bathroom with a knife with the intent to kill myself. And I never told anyone about it. Like no one knew about it until I shared it with my now ex-wife after I wrote the book, <laughs> right? Like, like not a single person had ever heard that story. So it wasn't a cry for help. It's very foreign to me now because I'm like, I, I can't even imagine being in that situation where I thought that was a good idea. But, but it was a real thing that I went through and I had to tell people that to get them to understand how significant the change was, right? I had to be completely authentic. And that's, it's really hard to do, but doing that, and I think the lesson that people can learn from this is they don't have to write a book to do it. But if you tell your story and you're authentic, all of us go through hardships. We all have struggles and, and all of us overcome stuff. And if you tell that story and you share it, even if it's just with a couple of people, it can change your entire life because it forces you to pay attention to the things that are really important to you. And I think that's, that, that's the secret, I think, to that whole thing. And I'm really excited to read your book. I, I ordered it this morning. Uh, I followed you on Instagram at stride motivation. And uh, I um, I'm really glad to have you here. So Jillian, anything you want to ask before we wrap up with Nick here? No, I just want everybody to encourage everybody um, to follow Nick on TikTok. That's how I found Nick. And he starts every, you know, it's his video because he starts it right here. <laughs> every video starts right here. Um, and I, I just love them. So uh, follow him on TikTok, follow him on Instagram. Today's guest was Nick Killing Smith. I, I screwed it up at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I think you screwed it up again. We should I let did. Nick tell us how to say his name. Yeah. What, what, I used to misspell you? it until I was in the second grade, so don't worry about no, it. But, Nick Klingen Smith. <laughs> okay. Emphasis on the again. <laughs> Klingen Smith. Klingen Smith. Klingen Smith. All right. Well, we got that. Nick, I'm really happy to have had you here. And yes. uh, Jillian, would you like to take it away? Yes, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much to our guest today, Nick. And and check him out at Stride Motivation on Instagram. You can check him out on TikTok and buy his book, Through the Fire. Everybody, we'll be right back. Thank you. Hey. Julian. 
word to your mother. I always like that music, the little rap music. It's pretty good. So. <laughs> That's why I say word to your mother. <laughs> yeah, I know. I appreciate that. And um, hey, so that was a great guest. Thank you for uh, I knew finding you him for it. us. I, 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 booked, I booked him just for there's, you, Jeffrey. There's a ton of similarities in our life story, and I really like that guy. Um, although... I uh, I will admit this. I, I I think my Kilimanjaro is the extent of my physical activity. I don't plan on doing any more of those uh, <laughs> uh, those uh, obstacle course races. I, I thought about it once. I will say this though, like so, I did do this one, and I think I finished like um, after everyone. Like you know, they break your scores down by like your like age group, and I was the second to last person in my age group to finish. And I felt pretty good about that for a minute until I realized that the one person that finished behind me was actually severely disabled. Like, <laughs> like, like I mean, they, they, they were, they were like, they were like in a wheelchair kind of situation. And I was like, wow, I am really bad at this racing thing. But I will say this, it's like climbing Kilimanjaro you know, I got to the end and I finished. And that was my goal from the beginning. It wasn't I wanted to set a record. I didn't have an intent to do it. I went through my obstacles. I got to the end and I finished. You did. And I think that's amazing. And uh, and and I love the fact that you did Kilimanjaro. I remember, I remember when you did Kilimanjaro. I know. And, you know, I wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for you. I, I know that sounds crazy, but like I got, I, you know, you kept saying, well, like if you're going to do this, you need to tell people in the last life ever Facebook group and all this. So I told all these people in the Facebook group, I was going to do it. And then I was like, man, now all these people are following along in my journey. I've got to just do this. I have to keep going, have to keep going. And it was really you and Robert Holmes actually that made it. So, it was, and so Robert, if you're watching, thank you for that. I don't know if you know this or not, Jillian, but Robert Holmes climbed Kilimanjaro also, right? And I yes. skipped Lena, that guy, and I thought, man, if that guy can do it, I sure as hell can do this. Oh my God, if that guy can do it, you can do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got to the top, like to the top of the crater rim, and I sat down on this rock, and I yeah. thought, I'm going to stop. This is just way too hard. So, like, when you climb Kilimanjaro, the crater rim is like about 19,000 feet, but then you have to walk three quarters of a mile and up 300 feet to get to the actual summit. And uh, holy cow. Like that's a really, I mean, you're in the snow and you're already at 19,000 feet. So like every step is tedious and it's cold and you just want to go down the mountain. And I literally sat on this rock and I thought no one will ever know the difference. You know, like I'm at Stella Point, like a lot of people get their picture taken here because it's like one of the false summits and like they yeah. just call it good. And I literally stood up and I'm going to say this out loud one time and one time only, but only because of Nick cussing on our show. I literally said this, I said, Fuck you, Robert Helms. And I stood up and I walked to the surface. <laughs> and then I tried to call you from the summit, but I didn't have cell service. So <laughs> that is so great. That is so awesome. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Jillian Sidoti. That man, wherever he is, is Jeffrey Holst. And this has been the Last Life Forever podcast. And we want to remember to live the best version of your lives. Seven, seven, seven.